Heavenly Father, thank you for that word. Uh, Quicken our hearts now, Father, by your Holy Spirit. Open our hearts and minds so we can understand what it means, so we can receive this great truth and that it might change us and strengthen us to live in ways that please you. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we're starting a brand new series uh, today. I want to start off uh, as we think about the idea of confidence and assurance, uh, thinking, first of all, on a very non-spiritual level. Uh, what do you think uh, is the most trusted brand in Australia? The most trusted brand in Australia. Has anyone got any thoughts? Qantas. <laughs> I think if I put the words A380 next to that, we get a little bit uh, less confident. But it used to be, I think, very strongly. Hills Hoist, yeah, it's up there actually. <coughs> Tip top, yeah. Uh, here, apparently, according to the Reader's Digest 2013 survey, is the most trusted brand in Australia. Dettol, who knew that? Okay, but uh, you know, you'll clean with confidence now. Apparently, that's that's uh, that's good, isn't it? So, and uh, they've branched that brand out into all sorts of different things now, so that it's kind of everywhere. Uh, but that's apparently the most trusted uh, thing. How about trusted professions? Sorry? Doctors? Uh, not doctors? Sorry? Nurses? Okay, here were the, here were the top ones. Uh, these two here. Fireys and nurses. That makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, I think that's... We know why we trust them, don't we? I mean, they're, they're people who... They don't have anything else. They're serving us. So why would they do it? I mean, they get paid. But there's a sense in which we love their sacrifice and their offer of themselves... And we trust them. We have confidence, which is really good. In terms of people in Australia, um, I, I actually looked at the top ten list of people that we trust and I actually didn't know most of them. So there you go. The one person I could pick out of the top ten uh, list was this guy and you might uh, recognise him. Anyone recognise him? Yes. Dick Smith. Now, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with Dick Smith being someone I'd trust. I'm, I'm still not 100% sure whether I'd take a helicopter ride, but you get the idea anyway. He's a, um, he's a trusted, trusted person. Uh, what we're looking at in this series is trying to work out how can we find assurance to endure until the end of our race. We want to be people who start following Jesus and follow through all the way to the end. Where do we find grounds for assurance, for confidence to keep going all the way to the end of our life? So that's what this series is about. Not identifying brands we're confident in or people, but Grounds for confidence for you and I to keep trusting God for all of our lives. So where would we find that sort of confidence? And more importantly, are you confident? Are you assured? I want to start by asking two questions. And if you've been in life groups this week, you'll have heard these two questions before. But I'd love you to think with me, uh, with me again. Uh, when I put this question up, I've, I've asked this to people in a whole variety of different situations. And every time before I ask this question, I say to people, now, I don't wish this on you, but... Let's think about this question. Is that okay? Everyone prepared? Okay, here's, here's the first question. First question is this. Are you 100% sure, certain, that when you die, you'll be with God in heaven? Are you 100% certain that when you die, you'll be with God in heaven? I won't play any thinking music, but I think most of you will have an answer to that. It'll spring to mind. I want to think about that question for a second. I think at first glance, there's three possible answers. There's 
No, I'm not certain. In, in some sense, I'm certain I'm not certain. Do, do you understand what I'm saying there? I'm sure I'm not sure. No, I'm not 100% confident. Uh, the second answer is up the other end. Yes, I'm 100% confident that if I was to die, I would be with God in heaven right now. In between are a lot of answers that are probably along the lines of maybe, I hope so, I would like to think so, if everything went well, perhaps. They're our maybe answers. But I want to challenge you a little bit this morning and say, I actually think, despite the fact that in this middle section we could put in all sorts of different words, I'd like to suggest to you there are actually only two answers to this question. I want to suggest to you that the two answers to the question, are you 100% certain, are yes, and that by virtue of asking 100%, everything that isn't yes must be no. Do you follow me? So even, so even though we'd say, I hope so, I'd like to think so, maybe, perhaps, anything else is a no, I'm not 100% certain. Are you with me? That's pretty striking, isn't it? It changes the question a little bit, perhaps, in your mind. Uh, there's a second question. Imagining that you were to die tonight and you were to stand before God and he was to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Now, I don't know if you can imagine that scene. There's all of us. We're actually quite a big crowd this morning, which is wonderful. But I want you to imagine all of humanity arrayed there before God. And he calls you up by name. And I won't call anyone's name here, at least not intentionally. Uh, I'm trying to think of a name that isn't one of you guys. <laughs> Lucy. I know, but she's out there, so she, she can't hear me. Uh, Lucy, come forward. And because it's God, you don't need him to add a second name. You can hear your creator speaking to you. And so you get up out of the seat and you come forward. And he says to you, why? Why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? What would you say to the living God is the reason you should be let into his heaven. Can you think about that for a second? Again, I think there are a number of answers. The first thing is to say, actually, God, I'm going to, I'm going to stop you right there. I feel in myself I am not worthy. I'm not worthy to come into your presence. You ask me for a reason why I should get in. I can't give you one, God. I'm not worthy. So some people will feel despair. I'm unworthy. Some people will say with great confidence, well, you should let me in because I'm much better than that person. You know, I haven't. And so I must be. There's a sense in which some people will say with great confidence, well, at least I'm not like them. So yes, you should let me in. After all, I haven't murdered anyone. There's another group. Another group would say, look, actually, God, it's a great question. I wish someone had asked me before I got here because I don't know the answer. I assume there must be one and I don't know what it is. I don't know. I suspect there'll be a fourth group and uh, they're up here somewhere. Um, and they're the group that would say, maybe even this morning in this room right now, I don't really care. They're the rebels. 
I've got a rebel up there. Uh, they're the rebels. They're the people who say, look, God, I just reject the premise of your question. I don't, I don't want to be interested in who, what happens when I die. I'm here for a good time, not a long time. There's a variety of answers to that question, aren't there? The problem is, for most of us, we're in trouble. The problem is that we're bad judges of ourselves. We're bad judges of ourselves. Some of us are too quick to activate our inner lawyer. Hey, hey, but, but here's, I object. Some of us are too quick to activate our inner judge. I'm a hopeless failure. Some of us are too quick to flick the switch on the TV and not think about it. But whatever it is, you and I make bad judges of ourselves. And, and the best example, and you've probably seen me do this before, but I think this is the best example of why we're bad judges of ourselves. Yeah, you've seen the scene? It's the trials for Australian Idol. And they stretch out the door for a, you know, a kilometre and a half of people who think, what? They're great. They're, they are the next Australian Idol standing right here. And if, in fact... Everyone's wasting your time. Get out of the line. I'm the only person who's going to win the show. And they get in front of the judges, right? And maybe they're wearing some odd costume. You know that you can already see something's not quite... So they start singing and they warble away. And there's that kind of, you know, they're sitting back in their things, either doing one of two things, either grimacing or they've got that kind of, they're suppressing the laughter behind their hands kind of moment. And they look at each other and and one of the nice judges says, "Uh, thank you for coming in today. And one of the other judges might go, uh, you try very hard. But there's always a Kyle kind of person on the judging thing, isn't there? They, they get put there because that's good TV. And what he says is what? Well done, here's a merit badge. No? Your self-delusion meets an objective judge and he says, you're rubbish. You're not going anywhere on this show because you can't sing. Now, we might not want him to say it like that, but at home we already knew the verdict, didn't we? How come it wasn't so clear to them? What were they ever thinking? I think this show, again and again and again and again, shows us our capacity for self-delusion. We either... Because the other thing that happens... Somebody might sing stunningly, and the judges go to them, how come you haven't been singing before? And they go, I just sing in the shower, I'm, I'm not really... You know, I don't, I don't know. And they go, you're insanely good. We've got to have you on the show. You're in my top ten already. Or, you know, all the stuff that goes on in these shows. But, you know, that person is deluded about the fact that they weren't... You see, we, we lack the capacity to judge ourselves well. And one day, one day, our delusion will meet an objective judge. So what happens with this question is, left to our own, on our own thinking... We set the wrong standards. We create the wrong God. We draw the wrong conclusions. And what that means for us basically is that if you're in one of those categories, you will have no assurance of what will happen on the final day. In fact, potentially, you might have heard me ask that question this morning and right now you're dealing with some fear that you've been trying to put away for some time. I don't know what will happen when I die. I don't know what I'd say to God if I met him. And it might just be spinning around in you right now because you can't know for sure on your own. 
Have a listen to these words from Acts 17. It says this, Paul's in a, uh, a big meeting in Athens and he's speaking to the smart and learned people of the day and he says this, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he set a day when he would judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. What Paul's saying 2,000 years ago is God has set a day when he would judge the world. And in fact, it says that Jesus will judge the world for sin. Jesus is the one who was raised to life again. Jesus is the judge and he will judge the world for sin. Well, here this morning you might be going, okay, great. Sin's used to sell everything from cars to ice cream these days, isn't it? You know, indulge, have a sinful indulgence or whatever. Like horrible things get connected. Our purchasing behaviour gets connected to the language of the Bible. So what does the Bible have to say about what sin means? Good question. Four things, I think, that the Bible helps us understand about what sin means. First of all, sin is a holy line that's been crossed. A holy line that's been crossed. And you guys will know what this looks like. It's the don't walk on the grass sign that makes you want to walk on the grass. It's the wet paint sign that makes you want to touch the seat to see if it's wet. Do you know what I mean? It's the don't sign that makes us want to do. That is sin. It's our desire to break whatever set of rules are around us. Sin is God's holy standard broken. Sin is also falling short of God's standard. And the best example I can see, you probably can't see this picture very well, tiny little person, great big ocean. God's standard is extraordinary. In fact, he expects perfection from us. I liken that to putting you at Bondi, having you hop in the water and telling you to swim to New Zealand. Now, I have no doubts that different people in this room would make it further than me. I'd wade in and decide it's too cold and sit on the beach, I think. I'm not really a huge swimmer. I'm not not a big fan. But some of you will be great. And so you'll think, I'm going to have a go for God's holy standard, New Zealand, the coast on the other side. And so you set out. Will any of us make it? I, I see some shaking heads. None of us will make it. God's holy standard is as far away as the shore of New Zealand from Bondi for us swimming. It's not going to be possible. We will fall short of God's holy standard. That is sin. Thirdly, sin is neglected conscience. Now, I just want to check in with everyone here. Does anyone know what a conscience is? Has anyone seen one lurking around a building any time recently? They're a bit like stray cats, you know. Occasionally you see one, but you don't see them very often anymore. They just get cleaned up. Do do you know what I'm talking about? People used to talk about conscience. It's a bit outmoded these days, isn't it? What's your conscience? Anyone want to have a bash? What's your conscience? A niggle. A niggle. That's good. I like that. That's good, Jenny. Anyone else? Jiminy Cricket. Jiminy Cricket. It's hard to compete with that one. All right, Jiminy Cricket. Yes, on your shoulder kind of talking to you. Very good. Here's the thing, there used to be a functioning concept that you had a voice that would speak to you and say for you to do the right thing. Does anyone remember this? Has anyone listened to it recently? One of the definitions of sin in the Bible is neglecting our conscience. 
not paying attention to that voice, going our own way against what we know to be good. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Thank you, Annette. The fourth one, and I think the one that condemns us all, let's say that you never crossed holy lines, that you're able to maintain God's standard of perfection, that you never neglected your conscience. Here's the really challenging definition of sin in the Bible. It's the good undone. It's the good we should do that we don't do is sin. And I've got a picture of a dishwasher up there, unpacked, or not unpacked, if you know what I mean. It's the good we could do that's left undone. Do we know what that looks like? God says when we don't do that, we sin. Well, that's pretty damning, isn't it? Would anyone here, I think it's locked, guys. If you stand that little lock upwards, she'll be able to get in again, which would be lovely. Fantastic. Um, Sin is at least these four things. Now, would anyone here say, oh, confident in saying I've never sinned? Actually, don't bother putting up your hands. I'm going to look at you and say, I've been around planet Earth for long enough, not very long, long enough to know I fail that test. And I'm going to guess, on the basis of my experience, you have as well. So what does it mean for us if that's true? Our sin affects everything. First of all, it affects our relationship with our Heavenly Father. It's broken. There's a barrier between us and God. We've gone from being God's Friends to being God's enemies. It affects our relationships with others. My selfishness, my deceit affects other people. Our sin affects those around us. Our sin affects ourselves. We end up not being the people we were created to be. We don't bring the image of God into the world. We're churned up with anxiety and doubt and fear and loathing and envy and lust and our sin affects us. And because this swirling mass of humanity is out of alignment with God, it affects the world that we live in as well. The Bible says this, There's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It says this in James, it says, Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. And then most damningly of all, in Ezekiel, it says this, The soul who sins is the one who will die. God will not deal lightly with us as we rebel. All right, ready for the, uh, the punch? Here's the punchline. Our sin leaves us stained and powerless and facing death. Gee, that's the message you came to church for, wasn't it? Seriously. Can we get to the good part? Do you know what? I, I, I'm one of those people, you know, do you want the good news or the bad news? Anyone, anyone want the bad news first? Anyone want the good news first? Who, who chooses, I want the good news first? Well, some of you. Tom, I see your hand. I always go the other way around. I want to know the bad news because then whatever comes next has to be an improvement. That's the way it works for me. So what have I told you? I've told you the hard news. The hard news is that we're not right. But you know what? I'm not creating this reality. I'm telling you something you already know. Don't you? Here's our reading that was brought to us by Simeon. 
Open your Bibles. Have a look with us. We're in Hebrews chapter 10. Human beings have been faced with this reality for a long time. We're in Hebrews chapter 10. And I want to read to you from verse 11. This is, this is human beings' response to the sin problem, essentially, in the world. Verse 11 says this. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. What does it look like to be a religious person aware of sin? It looks like all the world's religious practice. We do it again and again and again. You'll take your pilgrimage to Mecca. You'll go through your prayer beads. You'll spin a prayer wheel. If you're a secular Australian, your medicine for sin and the trouble of the world is to go on holidays. And so you'll holiday again and again, hoping that it will set you right. What it says here is in Old Testament Israel, they kept on doing the same thing again and again and again. But it could never take away sin. It was a ritual in frustration. So how can we remove the stain of sin? How can we remove that stain of sin that's in our soul? Uh, have you seen this book before? Has anyone seen this book? Oh my gosh, really? Am I bringing this to you for the first time? Can anyone speak a word of testimony about this book? Hallelujah, Hallelujah I see that hand. I hear uh, so uh, this lady here, Shannon uh, Lush and uh, Janet, Jennifer Fleming, have written a book called Spotless. And uh, it's room-by-room room solutions for domestic disasters. It's a, it's a great book. And so what you do basically is you find your disaster. Uh, I've just opened a random page. Here we go. Um, our house was broken into, says Robin. The police came and collected fingerprints, but they left all this black powder on the carpet. And I don't know how to get it off. I rang the police and they didn't know either. That's dangerous, isn't it? Anyway, Greg, you might be able to tell us what they use. Anyway, uh, problem, black ink stain on carpet. What to use? Milk, cloth, detergent, lemon juice, or dry cleaning fluid, cotton ball, talcum powder, vacuum cleaner. How to apply. And it tells you what to do for that specific problem. Amazing. There's things that use rotten milk. There are things that use uh, nail polish remover. It's just extraordinary. Whatever the stain is... Shannon, wonderfully, amazingly, has a plan for how to get it out. So if you haven't got this book, insert you know, promotional piece here. Uh, spotless is the way to get gunk out. So here's the thing. Where's the entry in this book for sin? It's not here, is it? It's a stain that Shannon doesn't know how to remove. Have a listen to these beautiful words. <laughs> Have a look with me at verse 12. But when this priest, he's talking of Jesus, but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now, if we were at a football game, we would all stand in our seats at this point and go, yeah. Because we just found it. We found the way. The one sacrifice, the one that doesn't need to be repeated again and again is Jesus. And he has declared us spotless. He has made perfect forever. 
Those who are being made holy. Bring it on. Great verdict. Stain out. It goes on. The Holy Spirit testifies, verse 13, to us about this. For he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I'll put my laws in their hearts and I'll write them on their minds. God will take that law that was out there causing us to stumble and put it inside us so we can obey it. And then he says, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. People here today, do you know God offers to forgive you? In fact, better than that, God offers forgetting and forgiveness. He will not remember your sins or lawless acts anymore. Do you believe that? I think it's really hard sometimes because you know why? I remember them. But it says here that the one who could condemn us, God, says that he will forgive us and forget. I think that's extraordinary. That's the best news in the world. The only recollection of this sin is mine. It's not God's. Wonderful truth. So what does forgetting and forgiving mean for us? Um, I was in in class in uh, year 12 and my teacher came and saw me after little lunch. And, uh, and said, uh, you've been called up to the principal's office. Oh, strike. You know that first feeling, just that uh, little dread feeling? My goodness, what have I done? Because there isn't a good calling up to the principal's office, is there? And I'd never been called to the principal's office before. So my first thought was, what the heck have I done? So I'm walking to the principal's office, and on the way... I remember, it's a bad story, I'm a dag, right? But I'd been made school captain and I was going to have a meeting with the principal. It's a totally different meeting then, isn't it? It wasn't anything that I'd done. It, got, it was given to me to be the... I didn't campaign. I'm, it just was given to me. And so the call to the principal's office went from dread to, oh, I've never been here before, but this should be okay, I hope. I haven't done anything wrong, I don't think. I can walk in here actually with some confidence. Now, I did sit outside going, what the heck am I doing? I've never been in this room before. But I could walk into the room not fearing what would be on the other side. Have a listen to these beautiful words. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. How should you approach God? Some of you this morning will be fearing that day when you'd meet him. Some of you would be filled with uncertainty. The scripture this morning, God himself wants you to approach him, provided you've got it sorted out right, with confidence. To walk into that room of destiny with confidence. That's a huge change, isn't it? That's a huge change. Where are we to go? We're not to enter the principal's office. We're to enter the most holy place. Now, at this point, if you've just joined us, this is going to sound a little bit weird, but if you've been on our Exodus series for a little while, this would be really cool. Um, In the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, God set up a special tent where his people could learn how to approach him. They had to approach him with sacrifices. They had to approach him with priests. They had to approach him carefully and they had to approach him through a tent called the tent of meeting. 
And in that tent of meeting was another tent where God dwelt. And in that tent, there was a room at the end, this part here, which was called the most holy place. And in that place, God dwelt. What does it mean? Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, to go into the presence of God, you and I can have confidence to go into the presence of God. Why? What it says here is, by the blood of Jesus. Well, I want to ask the question that you're thinking, so what's blood got to do with it? Why blood? That's just weird and freaky and surely... We're going to end up with more stains, aren't we? What's blood got to do with it? Well, let me take you to this little part in Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 17, it says this, Any Israelite or alien, not a space creature. Everyone with me? An alien is someone from outside Israel, okay? Because I'm a boy, and every time I saw this, I thought it was talking about space creatures. All right. So anyway, any Israelite or person from outside among them who eats blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from his people. So God's saying, if you eat blood, you're in trouble. He goes on. For the life of the creature is in the blood, and I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves at the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Okay. What's going on? Do you remember at the start I said the punishment for sin is what? Death. What God set up in the Old Testament was you could have someone, something, die in your place. Lay your hands on the head of the sheep or the goat. Confess your sins over it. Now this is where it gets horrible, right? Slit the throat of the animal. The blood comes out. Why do I need to see the blood? Why can't we just chuck the whole thing on the barbie and have it be done? I need to see that the life of the animal has been spent in my place. I need to learn that sin is a bloody mess. Sin is a bloody mess. Now that's a graphic picture. I'm going to keep going from it but I want you to see it. This is what they had to see to know forgiveness. And we look at it and go, oh, please don't show anyone. It's too graphic. I want you to know this morning it's horrifically graphic to have sin forgiven. Someone in your place is what was set up. And so therefore it says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, Jesus is my substitute. Jesus' blood was shed on the cross, yes? What does that mean? His life for my life. Substitution. What an extraordinary offer. What an extraordinary offer. And he he brings us a new way through the curtain that is his body. What's a curtain? Well, again, in this building, inside this tent, there was a curtain that separated you from outside to inside. And Jesus has made a way again that you can get into this special place where God himself dwelt. And it goes on and says, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Wonderful. How do you have access to what Jesus did? You trust him. That's faith. Why is it great that we've got a great high priest? Because he lives today. Do you know that Jesus didn't stay dead? 
Some of you have heard rumours of this, I suspect. Jesus isn't dead. He died and came alive again. He now stands as our priest. What's the point of having a great high priest? Why is it cool? Um, this is an old movie. Carrie told me no one would remember it. Does anyone know what this movie is? Call it out. Few good men. I love it. What's Tom Cruise doing here? What's his job? He's the lawyer. He speaks on behalf of the guys who have been charged who are guilty, right? What is the purpose of the high priest? The purpose of the high priest is to speak to the judge on behalf of the accused, to argue the case of the accused. We have a great high priest in Jesus. Praise God. And because he never dies, he'll always do that job for me. So therefore I can approach God with great confidence. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with full assurance that faith brings. Having a heart sprinkled to cleanse us from, what's it say up there? A guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. God not only makes the payment for our sin, but he offers to cleanse our consciences. Wonderful, awesome offer with pure water. Well, since that's true, verse 23 says this to us. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Has anyone ever tried to lock up a bike? A boat? Something to a something? You know, if I, if I choose, say I got my bike and I locked it up to this table here, would it be secure? Why not? It's a, it's a table. Why, why wouldn't it be secure? Because you could lift the table, take the chain off, and away you go. What you need to do to make it secure is to chain it to something immovable. Chain it to something immovable. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. What's the security for our trust in Jesus? That God will always be true. That God will always be faithful. He is the unshakable rock you can chain your security to. He'll never move. He'll never change his mind. If you trust him, he will always be true. Set your hope, chain your bike, to the rock that is Jesus. Well, what should we do here this morning? We should consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. We're supposed to encourage one another on. Uh, do you know what happens? Why I can't encourage you? On to love and good deeds sometimes? Because I don't consider you? How are we supposed to consider how we can spur one another to love and good deeds when we never think of each other except when Sunday we say, oh, I didn't know they came to church. Oh, that's right, I saw them last week. How considered will we be in encouraging one another if we never think of each other? Consider how you may spur one another on to love and good deeds. Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Keep coming along. Keep encouraging one another because a day is coming where God will wrap everything up and I want you to be there and I want to be there and we can encourage one another. Here's a picture of us encouraging one another. Isn't that wonderful? Warm. Okay, here's my landing point. Three things to finish. What does religion look like when it deals with the sin problem? It says that you need to do something. Again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again. Why? It'll never be done. Keep doing it. 
Christianity says something far more profound. See our lamb up there? They were slaughtered every year. Here's what Christianity says. It's different from every religion in the world because it says this. It says the job is done. There was one sacrifice that was offered once for all time that Jesus has paid the price for us in a way nothing else could. It's done. You can be right with God. Extraordinary. What does that mean? If you were to stand before God, what should you say? Let's sweep all of that away. You can say, yes, yes, God, I know I'm certain. And why? Because I am trusting what Jesus has done on my behalf. That's how you can be confident. We're doing a series on assurance. Here's what the Bible says to us this morning. You can be spotless. The Bible says that sacrifice has been done once for all. Done. It says that we have a priest who speaks to the Father on our behalf and he lives forever. Have confidence in that. It says that we've been washed from a guilty conscience. Have confidence in that. It says that we should chain our faith to God who will always be faithful. It says that we should encourage one another to reach the end together. It says you can therefore approach God with confidence. It says we can have assurance without arrogance. Assurance without arrogance. We look not to ourselves. We look to the cross of Jesus where everything has been accomplished. Brothers and sisters, if that question struck fear into your hearts at the start of this morning, I want to tell you, you can be free of that fear. You can replace it with great confidence. If you have that confidence, hang on to it. Encourage others here to keep it so that we may run that race to the final day. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the wonderful work of Jesus. I pray we'd never sell it short. I pray we may celebrate it. We might stand in awe of it. We might give wholeheartedly our lives in thanks for it. That we might remember, Father, whether we feel unworthy, whether we feel like you're lucky to have us on your team, that we fell far short, but you loved us and saved us. Thank you, Father. Give us confidence and assurance, we pray, by looking to Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. There's a number of ways we can respond to that. Everyone should have one of these underneath their chair. This is what we call a Care and Connect card. Um, for some of you, that might be what, what Stu said might be quite new, and um, we'd love to get to know you more. Um, and you'll see on the top left there, there's a box saying, yeah, we'd like like to let you know who I am. And um, Stu and our other pastor Matt would love to love to speak to you. We're not going to we're not going to spam you or send you lots of uh, uh, information, but we'd love to know who you are. And others here today may also like to have a pastoral visit, so there's an opportunity on this card to fill that out. And the third box there says, 
I'd like to update my details. So if you've moved recently or you've got a new phone or whatever, then please let us know that. But for most of us, and I'd like everyone to fill this in, I'm going to fill this in as well. Um, if you've got some questions from what you've heard today and you'd like to know more, please do put those those down on the card. Uh, Stu and Matt's going to do a series, so maybe some of these things can be picked up in the next uh, in the next few sermons as well. Um, if you're not quite sure what the, this blood of Jesus and a, a number of us have already been looking at that, as you said over the last few weeks, but that all seems a bit strange. Um, you'd like to have more questions about that? Please do put them down as well. If if you like to, if you've got something on your heart that you'd really like prayer for, Stu and Matt meet every Monday and they go through these cards and they pray through these things. That doesn't get shared beyond that, but it's a great chance for you to be able to um, do that do that on Sunday and, and know that you're being prayed for specifically on that Monday. So let's all take that opportunity now to fill this out. I'm going to do the same thing. Put my name on there. 